There is, um, uh, many of you know if you've been to an Anglican church, a response to this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, which is not just an Anglican thing. Um, to prove that it's totally kosher, I once heard Don Carson recommending it at a conference. So all you Baptists out there can rejoice in it. We might do it for once in a while. Let's pray as we come to God's word uh, with thanks and uh, that he'd speak to us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the speaking God. And we praise you that you've spoken through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully and finally. And we thank you now for your word in the scriptures and ask that by the power of the Spirit, so you'd speak into our hearts for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. Oh, I expect you feel that sometimes, don't you? It's not worth it. Maybe it's, uh, you know, it's just not worth tidying the garage. You look into the garage and you think, I'm just not even going to start. I don't know where to start. Or you get home, you've got the packet of biscuits from Lidl. They were 35p. Oh, they're just a bit stale. It's just not worth going back to Lidl to take the biscuits home. Or maybe you, you know that 1960s phrase, it's not worth getting your knickers in a twist. I looked that up on the internet, probably not a great thing to do, but I think it means it's, it's not worth getting stressed about it. Or maybe in your household you say, oh, it's, it's not worth crying over spilt milk. In other words, it's not worth getting upset about something that you really can't tidy up or sort out anymore. Or, or perhaps you know the phrase, it's not worth going to the stake over. You know that phrase? It's not worth going to the stake over. The thing is, there was a time in this country where there were people who believed that there was something worth going to the stake over. They were Christians. And they believed that it was worth dying for the sake of the good news about Jesus. You see, that phrase, as you probably know, originates from the time in this country when the Bible was being put for the first time ever in a language they understood into the hands of men, women, and children. At the time, historically, we call the Reformation. And at that time, the stake that that phrase was talking about it was the wooden stake driven into the ground that men and women were tied to before what used to be called faggots, which were sort of Bundles of sticks were put around their legs and they were lit and they were burnt to the death because it was worth going to the stake for the good news of Jesus. Such a man, of course, was Thomas Cranmer who died in 1556 in Broad Street in Oxford, burnt for his refusal to deny the Bible's teaching about the Lord's Supper, about Holy Communion. So here's a, here's a question for us this evening. Is Jesus worth going to the stake for? Or, or maybe in our context for us, perhaps we'll make that a little bit easier. Is Jesus worth the hassle? Is he worth the bother? Because I don't want to pretend to you, especially if you're not a Christian here this evening, in some ways following the Lord Jesus Christ makes life harder. Let's not pretend that, you know, following the Lord Jesus will make all your traffic lights go green or everyone want to be your friend. In some ways, it makes life harder. Now, Paul's writing to these Colossians who are finding that out, and he wants them to stick with the Lord Jesus. That's why he says what he does in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I read them earlier. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See, that's what Paul wants this letter to achieve. 
that this young church that was brought into being by that good news about Jesus, the gospel, will stick with him. That the way they started with the Lord Jesus Christ is the way that they will go on with the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that they'll be transformed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we saw last week, as we looked at Colossians 1, 15 to 23, Jesus is supreme. He is the creator and the redeemer of all things. He's the head of the church. He's the one through whom God didn't just reconcile a people to himself. No, no, Paul said God is reconciling all of creation to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, this message is changing people's lives all over the world. In chapter 1, verse 23, he says this message is being proclaimed to everyone under the heavens. But the question is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it to you, to me, tonight? Because telling others about Jesus has brought hassle from the moment those first disciples opened their mouths at the beginning of the book of Acts. Do you see what Paul's life was like in our reading? Did you see chapter 1 and verse 24? He says, I'm suffering. Chapter 1 and verse 29, he says, I can strenuously contend, or, or probably more literally, I struggle. Chapter 2 and verse 1, our version says contending again, but really the word is fighting. I suffer. I struggle. I fight. It's not really an easy message to sell, is it? So why is it worth it? Well, why is it worth it? Why aren't you at home enjoying the balmy evening after the bitter cold of this morning? Why is it worth it? Well, Paul's going to tell us this evening that Suffering as a servant of Jesus is worth it because in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have it all. Suffering for Jesus is worth it because in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have it all. Three headings. We're going to say exactly the same thing three times. I think Colossians was probably written to rugby players like me. So three times the same thing with slightly different words. Here we go. Here's the first time. Suffering for Christ, the hope of glory. Suffering for Christ, the hope of glory. Now, verse 24 is one of the uh, trickiest, they tell me, in the New Testament, though its basic point is clear. Let me read verse 24 to us again. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering when it's for the sake of God's people, the, the church, That's who the church is. It's not a building or an institution or an organization. It's the people of God. You are the church as you gather this evening. And what he describes is his suffering in lacking to Christ's afflictions. Now, he can't mean by that that in some way what Jesus did on the cross when he suffered and died for us wasn't sufficient to deal with our sin and bring us back to relationship with God. To say that would mean he changed his mind from chapter 1, verse 20, where he's just said, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. No, Jesus' death on the cross, his suffering, is totally sufficient to restore us all to relationship with God when we come to trust in him. But the New Testament talks about Jesus suffering with his people. In fact, we live in the age of the suffering of Jesus. One day Jesus will return and all suffering will stop. 
But now, what we're called to do is actually follow in the steps of Jesus to tell a world that rejects God, that even hates God, the good news about his Son, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go about that work, we suffer. And because we are Jesus' people, well, he in one way suffers with us. There is suffering that has to be gone through. And Paul rejoices as he experiences that suffering for his God's people, the church. In fact, that suffering is in one way the way we know we're children of God. Like when Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 of Romans, he says this in Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. See, suffering with Jesus is a necessary part of sharing in glory, in the wonderful future with Jesus in heaven. It's not that our suffering in some way earns us that future, but rather it's a mark of being a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' life was one of suffering through persecution and his death to glory, and therefore the lives of all of his followers would be marked by suffering before we go to be with Jesus and enjoy glory. So as a servant of God's people, Paul gets on with his job. What is his job? What he says in verse 25, to present the word of God in all its fullness. There's nothing lacking, says Paul, in what God has said in his word. And so I'm going to let the Colossians know everything that God has recorded. There's nothing more than the gospel of Jesus from the word of God. That probably was the danger in Colossae, that there were new teachers around saying, you need to move on from that gospel. It's really quite simple what Paul teaches you. No, you need something extra. And Paul says, no, I'm happy to suffer just simply so I can tell you the message of Jesus as it's recorded in God's word. That is the heart of God's plan for his world. And so Paul says in verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, when Paul says mystery, he doesn't mean like a mystery to be solved, like, you know, Scooby-Doo solves a mystery or Inspector Morse solves a mystery. No, in the Bible, a mystery is something that God has planned in the past but hasn't fully revealed to the present. And so Paul says, this message I'm willing to suffer for, it's not just everything that God has got to say, the word of God in its all its fullness, but, but it's actually something wonderfully that God has made known now, that he has revealed to us. All history has been waiting for the moment when this mystery is made known to us. And here is the mystery. Do you know the mystery of the entire universe? What God, with bated breath, has waited since before the beginning of time to let humanity know? It comes in verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that that's people who aren't Jews, the nations you might translate it, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what should take your breath away. That's what God has planned to make known, to bring people all over the world to himself. That Christ is in you, if you trust in him. The, the, the Jesus we read about in 
chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, the, the Jesus for whom and by whom and through whom the whole world is created, the one who is supreme over all things, comes and takes residence in the hearts of his people, Christ in you. That Jesus, who the whole of creation is about, comes and has a personal, intimate relationship with you individually. And that means, says Paul, there's the hope of glory. Because he has come to you personally now, one day you will stand personally before him face to face. That you will dwell with God as part of his people forever. One day all you'll know is the glory of God, his perfect goodness, his perfect love, his perfect faithfulness, his perfect blessing. Christ in you now, personal relationship, the hope of glory, a certain future with him. That's why Paul rejoices in suffering. Because the result of him making this word known is that people from all over the world come to Jesus Christ and know God intimately and dwell with him forever in eternity. Is that worth going to the stake for? One of the things that's being debated isn't in the old election campaign is the immigration-emigration quandary. And one of the things that struck me over the last few years is the extent to which some of these people fleeing conflict overseas will go to make it to good old blighty. Has ever struck you as odd? We're here whinging about our country left, right, and center. And then in something like 2016, 11 people die trying to get across the channel. I mean, getting across the channel is a pain, you know, and the ferry is awful. But these people are willing to die to come to our country. There's that guy who's electrocuted on the top of a train by the power lines, other people dropping out of lorries and being run over on the motorway. And what are they coming for? £36.95 job seeker allowance. Or maybe a few hours on a minimum wage if they're lucky, or more likely being exploited around the back of the cafe doing washing up so we can have our food a bit cheaper. They are willing to die so that that is their hope, their future. And Paul says, this is the future that I'm willing to suffer for. That people have a personal and intimate relationship with the God for whom and through whom and by whom all things were made. And one day they stand with him forever face to face and only know his perfect love. So is that worth it? Is that what you think is the best thing in the world? To know Jesus Christ in you now and to look forward to the hope of glory with him forever? Is that worth losing everything the world can give you now? Is that really what we're willing to go to the stake for? Because I want to be honest with you, and I've been really challenged by the Lord over the last few weeks on this, that I believe this is true, but it doesn't actually change much of what I do day to day. And of course, it changes. You must hear a pastor, Daph. You, you read the Bible all the time. That's all you do, isn't it? I mean, this is what you do in life. But then I walk into little, and I'm more likely to share with the person standing next to me, have you seen the fantastic things they've got in the Isle of Joy this week? I never knew I needed one of those strange German contraptions. See, my problem is that I don't treasure Christ in me enough, that deep, personal, intimate relationship. And I'm not just saying this because it's a sermon. I'm saying that because it's true, Christ in me. And actually, I don't treasure my future with God enough. 
the hope of glory. Sometimes it seems precious when things get really rough. But actually, a lot of the time, I'm more interested in comfort today. What, what can make me feel a little bit happier now? Which might be a bit of cake or a nice program on the telly or somehow the kids being quiet for five minutes in a row. So Paul goes on, secondly, to tell them how he's gone about this ministry and how he changes, therefore, people's hearts so they do treasure Christ in them, the hope of glory. And it's our second heading, it's this, agonizing for Christ, the source of perfection. Agonizing for Christ, the source of perfection. See, we started with suffering, we're going to be in agony next. It gets worse. Have a look at chapter 1 and verse 28. He, that's Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so we present everyone fully mature in Christ. It's a great model of what ministry should be about. We, Paul says here, we proclaim, that, that means it's not just Paul's ministry, it's, a, it's Epaphras, who we met back in chapter 1-7, who, who told the Colossians about Jesus. It's Timothy, with whom Paul is writing this letter. It's, it's his ministry. And now, Paul says, we proclaim one thing, him, Jesus. At the heart of God's plan for the world is Jesus Christ. We're, we're not proclaiming a lifestyle. We're not proclaiming a set of laws for people to obey. We're not proclaiming a club to enjoy. We're not even proclaiming social justice. We're not primarily proclaiming a worldview. And we're certainly not proclaiming someone who will promise to answer all your problems. We proclaim him, Jesus. Admonishing, as has already been pointed out by Nathan, means warning. That uncomfortable business of saying to people, look, if you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ... What you think or the way you behave is just incompatible with what he said. And teaching, that glorious and wonderfully positive business of telling people the wonders of God's love in the Lord Jesus. And Paul wants the Colossians to know that that's a message for everyone. In the original, this, this verse reads like this. Listen carefully. Him we proclaim, admonishing all people and teaching all people in all wisdom so that we may present all people perfect in Christ. So if you're not in the category, all people, then this isn't a message for you. But basically, if you fall into the category of all people, this is for you. Jesus is for you. And do you see how the verse begins and ends with Jesus? We proclaim Jesus, and he's the one in the end who will make you perfect. And actually, Paul said something similar back in chapter 1 and verse 22. He said this, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death to present you holy in his sight without blame without blemish and free from accusation in other words when you come to the lord jesus christ at the cross he gives you the status of perfect before him perfect child of god that's your status now if you trust in the lord jesus as ben brilliantly said last week then god looks upon you and his is the view the only view that matters he looks upon you as his perfect child whatever you've done yesterday whatever you do today and whatever you do tomorrow he looks upon you as his perfect child and you know what one day says paul you will be perfect in reality it won't just be your status it will be your state You'll stand before God as perfect as Jesus is, as kind as Jesus is, as loving as Jesus is. That's God's restoration project. 
And how does it happen? Well, Paul says, we proclaim Jesus. We admonish people and we teach people. And when Jesus returns, they'll stand before him perfect. That's what we're about. And Paul actually says in verse 29 that that he does that struggle through Christ's strength. Look at verse 29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And that strenuously contends, a bit polite really, it's really a word for struggle. It's not the struggle, you know, to get the last bit of cream cake down, or that struggle to find enough time to do my hobbies. The word in the Greek, it's one of those onomatopoeic words, you know, it sounds like it feels, agonoididzo. I mean, that agony, it's what we get our word agony from, to agonize. Agonoididzo is the word here, yeah? That's not contend strenuously, that is to go through agony. It's much more the idea of the, the sort of blood and sweat and pain that you see two rugby teams at when they're fighting out a contest. It's that sort of word. So, so is Christ worth putting yourself through agony for? So that, that one day you and others might be made perfect like him. Now, a couple of years ago, we went to a, a posh wedding. It's obviously Boo's family, not mine. It was at Clandon House. And uh, as many of you know... The uh, building burnt down shortly after that. These two events were not connected, I hasten to add. And the National Trust um umdenar, didn't they? And in the end, they thought, we're going to rebuild Clandon House just outside Guildford. And they're going through this restoration project. It's going to cost them something like £3 million. It's going to take a number of years. To do it, they're having to train workmen to take on like 18th century skills just to restore this building. Now, once it's finished... They say it'll be at its former glory. It'll be a very nice posh house. Did you get the point? If the National Trust are willing to do that, to make one old house as good as it used to be as an old house, how much more should we be willing to pay the price of restoring the the burnt-out shell of sinful human beings to the glorious image of the God we are created to be like? And that restoration project, it it costs Jesus his life. And it involves one technique, proclaiming him. And the result is guaranteed. The extraordinary thing, the result's guaranteed, made perfect. Even the effort to pull off the business of making Jesus known is a gift of God. Did you see that in verse 29 again? To this energy, to this end, I strenuously, or I agonize with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. It's Christ energy working in me, says Paul. And do you know how Jesus is powerfully working in you? It's not that you breeze through each day in a sort of cloud of spiritual happiness, peace and tranquility is your experience. No, you know Christ is working powerfully in you because it's an agonizing struggle as you seek to proclaim him. See, Paul's adamant that Jesus is worth suffering for because it's about an intimate relationship now and the hope of glory in the future. And he's adamant that he's going to agonize in the strength Christ gives him to make Jesus known. Well, because in the end, the results guaranteed will be perfect like Jesus. So we proclaim him, says Paul. And in case the Colossians haven't got it yet, or maybe you and I haven't got it yet, he says it again. Here's the third thing. Fighting for Christ, God's treasure. Fighting for Christ, God's treasure. You see, we've had suffering. We've had agonizing 
Now we're going to be absolutely fighting in the arena. Have a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. See, it doesn't matter whether Paul knows you or not, whether literally he's seen you face to face or not. This is his priority for everyone. He wants to struggle that they'd know Christ better. There's, there's nothing that Paul can think better of doing for any human being he has any contact with or that he can write to or send an email or a text to than that they might know Christ better. And again, we've got this word contending here, but it's another, it's another different word. It's a word literally for fighting as a gladiator in the arena. This isn't, you know, I'm contending, struggling because my homework is a little bit hard, or I'm finding it hard to put on this coat because, you know, I'm a little bit achy. No, this is the bloody fight to the death this word's about. And of course, for Paul, a lot of the early Christians, that's exactly what happened. But Paul gives us the reason he's willing to do it in verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. See, how are you encouraged in heart? Christ. How are you united in love? Christ. How do you have the riches of the fullness of all the understanding of what God is doing in his universe? Christ. What is the knowledge of the mystery of God? Christ. It's actually not a whole list of things Paul is trying to get across. It's one thing, one person who brings about all we need in relationship with God. Encouragement, unity, knowledge found in Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's nothing more valuable. And do you see how Paul's just rubbing the same things in again and again? We've had actually all these ideas already in these just few verses we've looked at. Fullness. That's the word of what God gave in chapter 1, verse 25. Glorious riches described Christ in you in 127. All wisdom is what proclaiming Christ gave in 128. Mystery of God is what Christ is in 126 and 27. I rejoice in suffering. I agonize with Christ's strength. I fight for everyone, says Paul, whether I've met them or not, that they might hear more of Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a culture that ridicules that idea. We live in a culture that increasingly thinks that that sounds weak and pathetic. But you know what? That's no different from the culture of Paul's day. Christians from the outset have been told that they're stupid because they believe in Jesus, that they're weak because they believe in Jesus. But Paul still will do anything that people will hear of Jesus. So, so what are you passionate about? What are you willing to struggle and fight for? I was um, watching rugby. It's always a great... You've got to watch more rugby if you don't. And it's amazing, isn't it, the passion before rugby? You know, the guys are there in the national anthems. Usually the Welsh national anthem. It is a lot better than the English one. Yeah. It just, it just moves the soul a bit more. And the tears are pouring down their face. And then they fly into that contest with commitment... To, they'll, they'll put their bodies on their line for the mates, all to possibly win a tin pot cup or to get a few more points so that maybe they win the tin pot cup at the end of the season. 
And their whole lives are orientated around that. If, if they're a professional sports person, that's what your life's about, isn't it? Everything is about doing that. And Paul says, my life is about Christ. My passion is for Christ. I'm wanting to struggle and fight for Christ. And he tells them in chapter 2, and verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. No, it appears the Colossians are tempted to being drawn away from Jesus. Perhaps they're saying, like people say in our world, that message of Jesus is a bit simple. Oh, you need to have some new philosophies. We've got some great new ideas coming in in Colossae. And no, says Paul, all you need is Christ. Perhaps actually they're finding life a little bit tough living for Jesus in Colossae. Maybe they've heard Paul is in prison. He writes at the end of this letter in chapter 4 and verse 18 that he's writing by his own hand, remember my chains. Maybe they're beginning to think, well, this following Jesus business has got Paul locked up. I'm, I'm not really sure it's worth it. I mean, we're always, aren't we, willing to be convinced by someone who tells us, here is a message or a product that will make your life easy and more comfortable. My my um, undersink cupboard is full of things that people have sold me on the door that they told me was going to make our kitchen easier. It, it, they, none of them have worked, but they're under there, a variety of special cloths and nice-smelling balls. None of them have worked, but I bought them all because we'll always go for somebody who says, that'll make your life more comfortable and more easy. And what Paul keeps saying is, no, your life following Jesus is going to be a struggle and it's going to be agony and it's going to be a fight. And probably these new teachers, they sound better than boring old Paul. Jesus, 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 Paul, that's all you say. The simple gospel of Christ crucified for sinners and a glory to come, Paul. Come on, tell me what's going to sort out Monday morning. But, but these new teachers, they might have had fine-sounding arguments. They might have had new things you needed to do. They might have promised you new spiritual experiences. But Paul says it's a deception. It's a lie. Only the genuine gospel minister will suffer for the church, present the whole word of God, proclaim Jesus. Because in the end, only Christ will bring you a relationship with God now intimately and the hope of glory in the future. Well, Paul thinks the Colossians are doing pretty well in chapter 2, verse 5. He says that whether he's with them or, or away from them, he delights to see how disciplined you are and firm in your faith in Christ Jesus. I wonder what his verdict on us here at Chessington Evangelical Church would be. Would he write to us in the same way? Or would he say, you have firm faith in Christ. Not, not just singing in Christ alone, my hope is found, but living it. Oh, I can see you're willing to suffer for Jesus because you know he's in you. And your hope is in glory with him in the future. And I can see that you're willing to struggle, to agonize with the strength Christ gives you. So that others might hear of him, whoever they are, and stand perfect before him one day. And I see that you're willing to fight like a gladiator might fight for their life in the arena. Just so that someone else might hear the full riches and the wisdom of the mystery of God, which is Christ. In Oxford on the 16th of October, 1555, Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, was burnt with Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London. 
for refusing to compromise on the fact that salvation was by God's grace alone. Let's not get it confused. They, They weren't burnt because they denied Jesus. No, the people who were burning them believed in Jesus. They weren't burnt because they were opposed by the state authorities. No, it was people who called themselves Christians who burnt them. They were burnt because they would not deny what the Bible had to say, that only Jesus can bring you to a relationship with God now and forever. And you probably know the account that as the fire was lit around them, Hugh Latimer said to Nicholas Ridley, who was beginning to become distressed by the experience, this. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, do you know partially why, my friends, the candle is burning a little bit low today? Well, it's got to be because of us. Do you know how we can rekindle the flame of the gospel in our hearts? Jesus Christ. You don't need more than him. Jesus Christ. Will you spend time with him? Will you rejoice in him? Will you pray to him? He is in you. And with him you have the hope of glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we saw last week the enormity of the Lord Jesus. How so often our Jesus was too small. That he is the one for whom and by whom and through whom you created all things. That he is the firstborn over creation. That he's the first fruits of the new creation. That, that his resurrection declares to us a new age has begun that you've reconciled all things to yourself through him, through his death at the cross. And that amazingly, our Father, that you have taken that enormous Lord Jesus and you've brought us to know him. You've made us holy and without blemish before you through his great love for us as he's died in our place at the cross. And our Father, therefore, we, we pray that we might be a little bit more like the Apostle Paul as we treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might suffer for him and count his an honor, that we might agonize with his strength as we proclaim him, that we might fight, that others, as well as ourselves, might know more of the wonder and the love of God for us in the Lord Jesus. This most glorious plan, what you are doing in the world. Please, our Father, write it upon our hearts and bring it to our minds that we might be those who above all else live for and speak of and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.